Welcome to the Dropship Podcast, where you'll learn how to build and grow a high-ticket dropshipping business and hear stories from successful e-commerce entrepreneurs. Let's kick this thing off. Hey, welcome to the Dropship Podcast. John here with you today with a solo episode. In today's episode, I am sharing a recording with you of a dropshipping Ask Me Anything I did in one of our Facebook groups, our public and free Facebook group, which you can head along to and join. You'll find the link in the show notes. Uh, so go on ahead and get in join there. As, as I said, it's free. Uh, there's all sorts of value. We do live trainings in there all the time. This was one of those. So in this recording, I took some pre-submitted questions from people in the audience and also some live questions and answered them on the fly. There are all sorts of different questions in there that relate to drop shipping, business. Uh, We talked about competition, how to deal with competition. We talked about niche selection. We talked about Google ads and a whole bunch more. So I hope you enjoy this. And without further ado, let's dive straight in to the Q&A. The first question comes from Emma. Thank you for your question, Emma. So Emma asked, broad question, but I'll try to narrow it down as best I can. How best do I set myself apart from my competitors? I'm getting a lot of traffic, but there's something stopping customers buying certain items from me instead of my competitors. And I know this from their reviews on Trustpilot. I understand it's hard to answer without seeing my actual website and competitors, but just some tips on what I could be doing would be great, please. No problems, Emma. So I actually got, we got quite a few questions relating to competition and things like that. So there, there might be some common themes here between some of the, some of the questions, which was interesting to see. So the first thing I would say actually about this question is that there's some assumptions built into it. Um, so the, the, the assumption is, is that you're running traffic and on some products you're not getting sales you think other people are, which may well be true. Other people may be selling those products and that's why you see them having reviews for those products and that sort of thing. But how are they selling those products? So the jump you're making is that your traffic isn't converting, but they're running the same traffic that is converting. And that's not necessarily the case. They could be selling those products any other number of ways and maybe paid traffic on those products, which I'm I'm assuming, Emma, I think you're a bit earlier on, um, you're probably mostly generating paid traffic. Don't assume that they're selling those with paid traffic also. So some products just don't work well with paid traffic, uh, but they convert well with organic traffic. Um, I mean, I've seen direct that, that happen directly, direct experience with that. Um, they may have other means of selling those products. They may have a massive email list. So there's a lot of things... Uh, you know, and this flows through, I think, some of the other questions I've got, that I've got asked for today. Um, it's it's easy to look at the front end because all you can see about other people's businesses is the front end, right? I mean, you have zero knowledge about what they do behind the scenes and to sell products, other avenues they have to sell products. You have no idea how big their email list is. Maybe they sell some products just via email. Like there's so much you can't see. It's very easy to assume just from looking at their front end about what they're doing, about how good they do things and all that sort of thing. And that can lead you down some false thinking or false paths. So that would be the first thing I would say is don't necessarily assume that anybody else is selling them off the same traffic that you are. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that uh, wasn't the case. But, you know, um, generally speaking, 
I think the other thing to say as well is, is that some products you just won't sell with paid traffic. So, you know, if you can't get them to convert, and I mean, yes, you should put efforts into conversion rate optimization and finding opportunities about things maybe you could communicate differently on your website to customers who land on those product pages and that sort of thing. You should absolutely give that a go. But sometimes in high ticket dropshipping, there are just some products that don't sell well with paid traffic, with certain types of traffic. And so the answer is just, stop advertising them or you don't have to advertise them or maybe you have to narrow out narrow down the keywords that you advertise them on or something like that so you can't rule that out either but you know before you get to that step i always like to um work out if i can sell those and when we when I, whenever i think about conversion rate optimization that's kind of what this is a question about you have to go through the, the easy steps for me to follow, I think, is, is using a, a, a method of thinking about it called the 40-40-20 principle, um, which comes from direct mail marketing. Uh, and I, I can never remember the guy's name that coined this concept. It goes back to, I think, the 50s or 60s. Um, the similarities between what we do today online and what people used to do via mail are uh, staggering, uh, actually. And, and a lot of what people talk about today uh, is actually from the 50s, the 60s, the 40s, the 30s uh, in the marketing space um, from a conceptual perspective. So the 40-40-20 principle just really quickly says that if, if 100 is, if, the, if you have the chance of a conversion happening, you score at 100, 40, 40 of that is going to be um, based on the quality of the person, of the traffic that you're putting your messaging in front of. So how close are they, how ready are they to buy, how knowledgeable are they about the market, et cetera, et cetera. The next 40% is about the quality of what's communicated to them, your offer, not what your website looks like, what's on your website, what they're seeing about the products, about your business, and what's persuading them to buy. And then 20% chance of that is how that information is presented. And that is that does mean your website. So you're noticing that your website actually is not the largest factor. Website design is not the largest factor in your website uh, converting or not, and it's not. Um, so the way I think through this is the first thing, if I've got a product that's not converting, is I'm going to go and look at the traffic because if I've got the traffic wrong, the chance that I've got a great offer or a, a great website, it's not really going to matter that much, right? Because I'm missing that first big chunk. And so if you're, if you're, if so for your advertising on Google shopping, you're going to go and look at like, what, what's the search terms that are, that that product is showing for. Are they the right search terms? Are they really top of funnel or are they really bottom of funnel? Um, and based on that, the answer about what you need to do is going to be different. So if you're getting a lot of bottom of funnel search traffic, which in this case would be people who are searching for that brand plus that the, the product name or the model name or something like that, if you are getting a significant amount of that and it's not converting for you, then it's going to be an offer problem most likely. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to throw in there for anybody listening, if the brand themselves are advertising in Google shopping ads and you are and you're not converting on those type of search terms, it's because they're advertising in the ads and you should not be advertising in the ads. Um, but assuming that's not the case, it's going to be an offer issue. If the traffic is really top of funnel, so it's like kind of like the product category, you know, type searches or product type type searches, there's no branding, there's no model specific nature to it, then that's probably more your issue. 
that traffic, that sort of traffic generally doesn't convert well off Google Shopping ads. And you're probably better at finding an, organ an organic traffic method to sell those products, right? So once again, I'm going to deprioritize pay that paid traffic. Um, and that's really going to be my, my issue. I'm going to try and find another way to sell that product. Um, so if you're in the first instance, you're like, yep, the traffic's good. It's very relevant. It's specific to this product. Um, customers are closer to the bottom of the funnel. They're closer to the point of being ready to buy. You, you know, you're not persuading them. You're not getting the conversion. It's going to be an offer problem. So I'm going to go out there. I'm going to say, who are the competitors? You obviously know who your competitors are. And I'm going to walk through like, what's their offer? Like their total offer, not just what's the product, not just are they offering any discounts? What's their shipping? What's their tax situation? What's their returns policy? Are they adding any other value into it? What's their, you know, like uh, review position? Like what's the trust factors they're throwing in there? I'm going to analyze that across the market. So I actually mapped that out in a spreadsheet and that's an exercise that's in the conversion rate optimization module in the dropship breakthrough program. Um, so you want to check in on that um, if you're in the program. Um, I take you through that whole, this whole, everything I'm talking about right now, I take you through in, in more detail in the program, um, you know, and so you want to look at what each of your competitors is, is doing. What's their offering? You want to put them in a piece of paper on a spreadsheet on something so that you can like compare them and you look at them and you think, well, can I do better on any, on any of these factors than anybody else? Or are there things that nobody else is talking about that I could talk about? So an example of that might be nobody really talks about their returns policy. So could you have a better returns policy or could you just talk about your returns policy even if it's not better because perception is everything here from the customer's perspective. Perception is reality even if it's not reality. Perception is reality. And so um, you want to map that out and see if there's any gaps. If there's any gaps, you plug those gaps. Put it like you've got to have your offer explained on your product page. If you're talking about Google Shopping traffic, Particularly, people are landing on your product page. That's all they're going to look at on your site generally. They're not going to go to your homepage. They're not going to go this and there and this other place on your site. So your offer needs to be clearly communicated towards the very top of your product page because when you're a reseller and if you're competing with other resellers, it's not really the product that people are making the decision about who to buy from based on. Right. Yep, they need to be convinced about the product. They need to be persuaded that the product is the right product to provide the solution and the outcome they're looking for because that's what people are really buying is outcomes, right? They're not buying the product. They're buying the outcome that the product produces, right? So yes, your, your product description, the images, all that sort of stuff needs to convince them that that's the right product. But the other decision-making thing that's happening in customers' heads for a product that is sold in multiple places is who is the right person to buy this from? Who is, who is the website that I feel best about that I connect with? Um, and so um, talking to your ideal customer, so knowing who your customer avatars are, and Ben does a great training session on this. I think he did one last week in our, in our membership, in our elite membership. Um, understanding your ideal customer, your customer avatars for your business is number one because the more directly you speak to them on your pages, on your website, the more relevant you make yourself to them and what their interest is and their, their passion, whatever it is that you serve. Um, and if you do that better than the rest of your competition, you build a connection straight away. Then your offer needs to be clear and clearly explained 
towards the top of your product pages. Uh, this is very important for a high ticket dropshipping business um, because you're not selling unique products, right? Um, so you, you've got to go through those. I mean, if you go through that exercise and you go through those exercises and you really can't see anything else you can do um, or, you know, there, there's just no options for you with that particular traffic, like I said, I would just call it a day on those and say, well, you know, maybe those are not going to be um, the products that I'm going to focus on selling a lot of, or I'm going to find another option to sell them that's not paid traffic. Are you enjoying the show? Are you getting loads of value? That's amazing. If you can do John and I one quick favor, hit the subscribe button, hit the follow button, leave a review. All of these things help us to reach more people, change more lives. And it's one small thing we ask of you. So again, hit that subscribe button, hit the follow button if you're on a podcast player and leave a review if you're on iTunes or if you're on Spotify. We appreciate it very, very much. So thank you for that, Emma. Next question is from Christian. This is a pre-submitted one. Christian asks, is there anything you have done or would recommend doing with your business outside the online space? I.e., would you have a stall at a trade show for the customer you serve, um, advertise your website on forums, etc., that have a link to your niche? Just a small amount of examples of other avenues other than Google Ads slash SEO to gain customers. Cool question, Christian. Thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess there's there is always going to be, um, you know, a range of things that you can do uh, to, you know, get in front of your customers. And it's going to be very much, I think at this point, it's going to be specific to your market, right? Or your niche who and understanding your ideal customer. So build out some customer avatars. Like who is your customer? What, where are they? Like, where do they hang out? What do they do? around the interest that you serve. So the example that you put in your question was surfboards at a surf show. Like, would you go in and show surfboards at a surf show? So obviously in that example, my my ideal customer is going to be somebody who surfs or is passionate about surfing. Um, and so I'm going to ask myself, well, you know, people who are passionate about surfing, like where where do they go? What do they do? Um, aside from the actual surfing itself, are there places that they hang out online or offline? Are there events that they go to? Are there things that they read? You know, ask a series of questions like that. And yes, absolutely. You can put yourself in any of those places. Um, so if there are like expos or something that customers, so not B2B ones, unless you're in a B2B niche, but like that customers actually go to that your business serves, then absolutely. There's nothing stopping you from going to that. And putting up and, and running a stall at, at a show like that for sure if that's a thing in your in your market that your ideal customer goes to absolutely uh there might be you know uh, organizations that your ideal customer is a member of um you could also be a member of those organizations you know like industry groups or um you know membership groups of some sort you could go and, and become a member of those yourself and, and and reach out to the owners of or the people that run that organization and say, hey, are there any opportunities to advertise or get ourselves in front of your uh, your members? Happy to pay for that. you know. And if it's good and it's specific and all that, you should be happy to pay for that. Uh, magazines, a bit old school. Uh, I've advertised in magazines for a dropshipping business before uh, where it was, very, it was a very specific magazine. So, for example, in the surfing space, there are surfing magazines right? You can advertise in those. I don't, I don't know that that's my favorite method, but 
Um, it's usually way more expensive than it ought to be, but um, and very untrackable. But anyway, it's an option. So yeah, I mean, there there's literally lots of options out there. But I would say whatever it is, uh, online forums was an example. Yes, you can absolutely go on online forums. Uh, you know, you can find people with a Facebook group that's got you know, a whole bunch of your ideal customers in it, reach out to the admins of the Facebook group and say, like, join the group, interact in there a little bit, be interested, and you should be. I mean, you should be interested in your ideal customer and what they do, uh, and then reach out to them and say, hey, look, you know, we sell these sort of products. We think we can serve your members of your group here. Like, do you have any options available for, you know, advertising or posting in your group? Um, you know, happy to pay, happy to work something out. Usually there's not really any standardization about that. And a lot of Facebook group owners don't even think about this, right? Um, you know, you could like put up a sponsored cover image on their group for a week or something like that that has that has your your brand and a link to your website on it and all the, you know, there's so many different things. And they do work. They do work. They can work as long as they're specific to your market. And I encourage people to do it because everybody's going to get in and run Google ads and, um, you know, that's what everybody will do. And you should absolutely do that because it's a good way to get started. But there are so many ways to get traffic to a website, to get people to look, you know, at um, at your products. Uh, and I would really encourage people to do that because the more you do the things that other people aren't prepared to do, you know, you make a few sales here, a few extra sales there through these little avenues like they add up trust me if you've got you find five to ten other little avenues to sell your products that, that stuff starts to add up as well as the sales you're bringing in from seo from the the bigger strategies that we talk about more commonly it's a good question christian thank you for it um all right i'm going to go over and answer a couple of live questions now thank you for people who have been submitting live questions keep um um Keep uh, sending those through here. So we've got a question. I have a local dealer who can get me a lot of brands that I need, but they want me to get product details from the brand itself. How do I get things like barcode numbers and all of those things? Uh, well, look, I mean, sounds like a, an interesting... Um, uh interesting scenario um there's probably going to be some limitations there i would say um in that you know there might be data that you can't get i mean it sounds like an unusual arrangement like um i could i could understand i guess grabbing things like images and descriptions and 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 that sort of information from a website, from somebody's website. Um, uh, and that probably isn't uncommon, but I mean, things like barcode numbers, I mean, those might not be available there. And so I'd probably be working on that local dealer a bit more. Like, I mean, it sounds a little bit lazy to me. Do they not have access to those things or do they have access to those things? Uh, if they have access to those things and they want you to make money for them, then it would make sense that they help you get a hold of those things. Um, so, 
you know, once again, I, I, I'd be pushing this. Like, are you necessarily going to need barcode numbers? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, like barcode numbers, you know, you can find a lot of barcode numbers yourself. So if you go to barcodelookup.com, um, you can find barcode numbers. So you can just put in like a product title that you get from the from the man, from the manufacturer or the brand. Put that into barcode lookup, and if there's a publicly listed barcode number, uh, you can find it there. You can just copy it from there and put it into your product data. Um, I don't know, you know, what else you need. I mean, what do you need? You need you need images. You need like any sort of specifications or technical information about the products. Um, you know, yes, barcode numbers, and you need pricing. I mean, that's really the main things that you're going to need. So, um, you know, if if your local dealer is not going to get it for you, and you don't have access to, um, you know, the brand themselves, then maybe there's some competitor websites out that you might be able to get various data points off people who are also selling those things online. If they've got them listed on their website, once again, that does not um, relate to product descriptions. You should never copy somebody else's product descriptions. Um, I want to be very clear about that. That is a breach of copyright. Uh, you can do that for the brand and your supplier. You can't do it for other retailers. I fucking hate when I see people do that. Um, uh, and it happens to our students sometimes. And um, yeah, it, it really sucks. And you're going to get booted off Shopify if you do that. So don't do that. Uh, but, you know, like barcode, if you see barcode numbers on another website, there's nothing to stop you copying those um, because that, those are public information. Thanks for the question. All right, next question. How to set up tax information when you're shipping to the 48 states, mostly when checking out with estimated tax, should you consider licensing before launching in all states that require or allow the nexus to be at its limit in the state that requires before getting sent licenses? All right, so sales tax USA. Look, I'm not an accountant. I'm not qualified to give any sort of financial or accounting advice. So take that in mind. You have a, you need to, you have a nexus in the state you're in. All right, let's keep it simple. You have a nexus in the state you're in. So if you're in Wisconsin, you sell to somebody in Wisconsin, you've got to charge them sales tax. Any other state, you don't. You don't even set up a sales tax. You don't even set up a, a tax rate. You set it to zero. Like if you're using Shopify, you set your tax rates to zero in every state except for the one that your business is registered in. So if that was Wisconsin, I would set a tax rate for Wisconsin. Or if I'm in California, I'm going to set a sales tax rate for California or whatever state you're in. Just do that. That's it. Um, now, from time to time, you may have a supplier that for some reason says, oh, we need you to be registered for sales tax in our state. You may have that. And you could make a decision at that point to get registered in that state if you want to. I still would say that there is nothing clear that says you need to in that circumstance that a supplier requires it. But if you just want to make somebody happy, you could do that. Uh, but in the beginning, for the majority of people, a majority of the time, just set it up. You collect tax in your state. Nowhere else. Simples. All right, just scrolling down. Let's see. Next live question from um, our live watchers is: Would you consider performance car parts a good niche in the United States? Oh, gee, car parts. Uh, my usual answer for car parts is no. I don't like car parts. Generally speaking, as general rule. Right. The reason I don't like car parts is because they tend to lead to very complicated stores. 
Now, this is just my personal preference I'm talking about here. I'm not saying that car parts can't work. I'm saying I don't like them because for every car part, you have a different variation for every make and every model within every make. Like there are different products. So like, you know, if you're going to sell an exhaust system, if you're going to be somebody that sells exhaust, you've got to have exhausts that are going to fit, you know, all sorts of different makes and models. And so you're going to have tons of them. You have to build special filtration systems into your website to help people to get to the right part for their car as quickly as possible. Uh, because if you don't, you've got fitment issues and all that sort of thing. Um, and those are all things that you can find solutions to. I know people who have done it. I know some people who have done very well selling things for cars. I don't like it though. To me, that's just not, I don't care that much about cars or I'm not passionate about it. Um, so I wouldn't do it. Uh, I don't like it. Performance car parts probably don't have as much of that problem because you're being much more specific. You're not just selling a, a car part that might apply to any like vehicle. You're saying, well, there's probably some very specific vehicles I'm going to sell car parts for, I don't know, intercoolers, turbos, who knows, all sorts of things, probably brake kits, you know, gearboxes. Yeah, yeah, there's probably a lot of products there. They're high ticket products that you could sell. And so if I was going to do it, I would be very specific. Um, and I would make my the amount of vehicles that my products would apply for as much smaller. Uh, now, I wouldn't say be like as small as I'm just going to sell products that apply to Nissans or something like that. You know, that's too specific. But, you know, performance car parts, you know, that, that's more specific than all car parts. You know, I'm sure there are things in there that could work. If it's something that you were personally very passionate about, you're knowledgeable, knowledgeable about, um, and or or maybe you there are products that you purchase yourself or have purchased yourself. Um, maybe you have some experience in a, of a mechanical nature with those sort of products. Uh, you know that could be like absolute gold for you, for sure. Um, but yeah, I would just be careful about that. You don't want to sell too much stuff um, in the car space. All right, I'm gonna get back over to. Um, pre-submitted questions now um, and, and I've got a question or two here from Brian hello Brian I know you're on the live because you did just uh, comment before um, and so uh, it's good that you're here so Brian says um, so previously you mentioned that, that there's never a perfect product or niche and to just start and learn I did start and I learned uh, and he originally started with lower ticket items. So I saw smaller margins and the logistics were smothering enough to where I couldn't keep ads on anymore because I would be losing money. Shock horror. Uh, it still blows my mind that so many people are, are coming into this group who are doing low ticket dropshipping or, or trying to do low ticket dropshipping. It's not a criticism. I, I agree that starting and doing something and playing around, learning how to use all the different little you know, tools and things that we use when we're drop shipping, like Shopify and all that. It's valuable experience uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But literally, it really doesn't work. Uh, and, and so the flip side of that is I also think like your most precious resource is your time. It's not money or anything else. It's actually your time because you can never get more, more of that. Why waste it on a low ticket drop shipping? But at the same time, 
experience is never wasted. Um, but just know if, if you're watching, like the, the problems that Brian's seen there is exactly the problems. Um, I, I just, every, every single person coming into this group's like, oh, I'm doing low, I'm, I'm going to try low ticket drops. You're like, where are you hearing about this? I thought that disappeared. Clearly not. Anyway, it doesn't work. It's worked for a few people. It really doesn't work. Anyway, uh, so anyway. Uh, Brian goes on to say that he's moved over to trying some high-ticket item niches. How can you tell if a niche is already too saturated? For example, if I was to sell commercial cooking appliances, uh, so B2B products like a commercial griddle, there is a store like webstaurantstore.com standing head and shoulders above the others. You often say there is always more money and always more customers. I do, and there is. So it may not be a question of is it possible but more like what makes it difficult to succeed in this niche and how to succeed despite the challenges of competition. For me, if I can't answer the question, what can I give the customer that these other bigger businesses cannot because I don't see any weaknesses with their business, then it's likely too competitive. Is this an accurate line of thought? If not, what kind of change mindset and tactics would you recommend here? I only ask because there are a couple of niches I, that I am in or thinking about and could be really passionate about and passion does sell, but they all seem well explored and well done by bigger businesses already, like the example above. Okay, thanks for the question, Brian. Uh, it kind of ties into an earlier question we're talking about regarding competition. Um, I did look, have a quick look at the um, website that you mentioned, Webstaurant Store. For starters, the first thing you can do is have a fucking better brand than that. What a dog of a website name. That's hideous. A Webstaurant. That's so, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. For starters, you can come up with a better name than that. Holy balls. Anyway, um, moving along from that, uh, look, I think the first thing to say is that don't, and I said this earlier, it's very easy to fall into the trap of assuming that a business is doing very well and doing a great job of serving all their potential customers by looking at their website, right? It's not hard to make a pretty good-looking website. That's actually not the biggest factor in success. It's not even close to the business biggest factor in success. I'm not saying it's not important, but like I looked at that business. I'm looking at it now. I mean, yeah, it's it's a nice looking business and hey, they're probably doing fine. You know, I don't doubt that. But when I look at that store, the first thing that jumps out to me looking at that store as an example is that it's it's a big store, like as in it's a broad store. So you're talking about oh, selling something like commercial griddle products, right? So your ideal customer there is going to be somebody who is setting up a business or owns and runs a business um, that produces food, probably a restaurant, maybe a cafe, something along those lines, right? That's your ideal customer. And so you can be very specific with that. This website is not very specific with that. So if I look at them, what are the products? They have 420,000 plus products on their site. So automatically, no business is selling any one product well in that space. You can't sell half a million products well. 
right? Yes, you can list them on your site and make some sales on them, but they're not going to be focused on any one product. This is the same question as how do I compete with Amazon? Amazon doesn't sell any one product very well. They just sell so many different products um, and all that sort of thing. So when I look here, this Webstaurant store, I mean, that's their name, but I mean, they're, they're product categories, grocery slash deli supplies, vending machine supplies, office products, break room supplies, like Majority of their stuff is a lot of low ticket stuff, um, beer distributor supplies, laundromat supplies, safe dining. That's kind of restaurants, gaming lounge equipment and supplies. Like you're not even competing with them on any of this shit. If your ideal customer is somebody who runs a commercial kitchen or a restaurant or some of some nature. So straight out, how do you make yourself more relevant to the customer? Be more specific than them. Just focus on one ideal customer. Let's be real. If you're in the on the US market, right? The US market is so big. You don't need to be big like these guys to make multiple seven figures a year, eight figures a year, at which point, believe me, you're going to be making so much profit just for yourself. You're not going to care, right? Like the, this, is, this is such a massive market. The other thing... The thing is like every market, every market in the US can support more than one big retailer. Like the notion that in any market, there is only one website that makes all the sales is completely false. So yes, I would pay attention to these guys. And yeah, if I could learn anything from them, I would say like, what are they doing well? What pointers can I, what tips can I take from that? If you're honest, like I wouldn't be taking a lot from this site. If, if I was going to go down that more specific route, um, you know, I mean, they are doing a lot of good things. They've got some content, you know, their website looks nice. Their product pages are okay. You know, they're doing some cool things, but like there's just going to be customers out there who just don't see them, who don't want to buy from them. Like, like just, yeah. Remember how big, you know, any, like we're probably talking about a billion dollar market here. Like these guys aren't making all of those sales. So what's what's more important to me is not like uh, like how do you beat individual competitors when you're thinking about this question of competition in high ticket drop shipping. I'm being very specific to here, of course. It's more um, it's more like how many competitors are there? I think that's a much more important thing. Um, particularly in the beginning, and competition is more important to factor in in the beginning. It's what makes getting started harder than it might necessarily be. Um, so you don't want to see too much individual competitors. If you see one or two or three really great competitors, it doesn't really matter because there's still going to be space for you, particularly in the US, which as I say, is just every market's gigantic there pretty much, right? So when we're doing niche selection, we focus on how many competitors there are. So if there's 10 competitors for the products that you want to sell that are focused on the products you want to sell, like if I wanted to go really deep into restaurant equipment, I don't even know if I would be counting these guys as my most direct competition. Like, because my site's just going to talk about that, all about that, right? Um, and they've got, a, you know, they've got some stuff here, but like, I don't know. They don't feel super specific to me. Um, and so I think 
I could do a much more specific site that's much more focused on my ideal customer. And there probably are some other competitors out there, but it's a total number of competitors. So when you look at the products you want to sell, the product categories, you know, if you're talking about commercial griddles, once again, which I think you mentioned, like how many people are selling commercial griddles online? Go to Google, search commercial griddle for sale, right? How many competitors come up? If it's like 15 plus in the US, um, that's going to be a red, bit of a red flag. I'm going to do some other product categories, see if it's the same. You could even go down the line of seeing what are some of the top brands of commercial griddles. Put their products in to the Google search bar and see how many people are selling those individual products. Once again, if it's like the Google Shopping Ads will sell, sold by 15 plus in the Google Shopping Ads, if it says that, it's, it's probably going to be rough going. If it's less than that, it'll be fine. Like I, I don't care about the individual quality of individual competitors it'll be fine below that. That's not going to be your issue. Um, so I think that's what uh, I would say uh, to that. Um, I think, Brian, you did also mention that um, uh, your first attempt at learning e-commerce was selling mechanical keyboards, gaming office, um, something people probably don't know about me is I'm, I'm a bit of a mechanical keyboard guy myself. I'm a bit of a nut. I've got all sorts, you know, you've got a bit of a little collection going here. You know, this is one of my favorites. It's a um, Melgeek uh, and Burgerwork plastic keyboard. That's cool. I often uh, use this one, this one, ceramic keycaps. Very nice. Great feel on that one. I love that one. I've got like five others sitting around me in pieces. Uh, so there's a little bit about John that nobody knows. Um, if you're doing a job, you got to have the best tools. Typing on a mechanical keyboard is way better than anything else. All right, so I'm going to move along here. Another pre-submitted question. This one's a quick one from JC. As we are building this, our website and loading up demo products, the site is going live on our PCs. But on mobile devices, it needs a password to access, which is correct. How do we prevent the website from being live? Well, actually, you're just seeing it on your PCs because it's your Shopify account. And you're probably logged into your Shopify account at the same time you're viewing your website and it won't come up as password protected if you do that. But if I go and visit your site on my PC, it will be password protected. So don't worry about it. You're all good. That was a quick one, wasn't it? All right. Uh, let's go uh, down to some more live questions here. Um, Next question, when registering your business name, does it have to be the same name as your website name on Shopify? Um, no, um, depends what you mean about when you say registering your business name. So, I mean, if you're in the US, does your LLC, if you're starting an LLC name, does that have to be the same as your website name on Shopify? No. It doesn't. Your LLC name can be whatever you want it to be. You're going to be doing business as whatever your website name is. Yes. If you're in Australia and you're registering a business name, once again, if you are starting a company, which most people won't in the beginning, but if you are starting a company, your company could have a different name, but you would be trading as your website name. So you would still register a name in the Australian business register for your website name. And yes, you should do that. What, what appears on your website, that's your brand. So depending, it's different different, different in different countries. Um, but generally speaking, you're either going to be registering or doing business as name in your state if you're in the US 
or if you're in Australia, you're going to register uh, a business name with the Australian Business Register, business name register, and you should do that. Um, you know, if you're in the UK, there would be a, something similar to Australia, I imagine, and you should do that as well. Um, so, yes. Cool. Next question. Hi, John. I've been running Google Shopping ads for the last four weeks and have made one sale. How much time does Google need to connect, collect enough data to better understand my business and visitor engagement before clicks and impressions start ramping up? I've had 50 clicks and 5K impressions. We've not touched daily budgets or CPC bids since starting. Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. Um, so, four weeks, you've made one sale of 50 clicks for starters. That's pretty good. That's a 2% conversion rate. Well done. That's a good start. Um, but yeah, I mean, Google's not going to just ramp up things for you. That's not how it works. If you're, well, if you're doing ads the way we do ads, and once again, I don't know how you're doing ads exactly, but I'm assuming if you're doing ads the way we do them, where you're actually controlling your ads and not doing something redonkulous like performance max or something like that, in which case I have no help for you whatsoever. Um, but if you're manually managing your campaigns and you've only got 5K impressions in four weeks, unless the products that you're advertising have really low search volume, uh, your bids are too low would be the probably thing I, I would say there. Uh, if you want to get more traffic, increase your bids. The easy way to see if you should increase your bids is to look at your search impression share um, on your campaigns, on your ad groups, or even on your products if you've got enough data to show it on your products. If it's very low, like it's expressed as a percentage, if it's like 10% or less than 10%, it means that your bids aren't high enough. You just need to increase your bids, increase your bids, you'll get more impressions, um, and that should turn into more clicks as well. Um, so that is the answer for that one, or at least the first uh, run answer at that one. Um, next live question is from James. Howdy, James. James asks, hi, John, should I create a formal contract for supplier relationships or is it okay to keep it verbal and informal? Well, look, I mean, a lot of, um, a lot of suppliers will ask you to sign some sort of uh, agreement, uh, supplier or retailer agreement. You know, you'll fill in a form, you'll sign it. Uh, it'll probably have some terms and conditions on it at some point. That's not uncommon. So, I mean, if you do that, that's essentially kind of like a contract. Uh, but should you do that going in the other way? Um, I mean, probably not. Like, you, like, it, no. I wouldn't. I never have. And and if I were a supplier, I probably wouldn't sign an agreement that you send me. Like what requirements are you going to put in a contract? If I'm a supplier and you're coming to me asking to sell my products, why would I enter into a contract where you're trying to bind me to continuing to sell you products? Now, you might like that. I get that. But the reality is why would a supplier sign that in the right at the beginning anyway when you're not even doing anything for them yet? Um, so, yeah, I've never done that, never needed to. Um, you know, you may have suppliers who come and go. That's okay. That's why we have multiple suppliers on a site um, because if one individual supplier goes, you know, it's not the end of the business. You've got other suppliers, other people to work with. So, no, 
you don't need to do that. However, if a supplier asks you to sign some sort of agreement, the answer is yes, you should. All right, let's keep going here. I'm going to flip back over to a pre-submitted question. We'll go to Valon. Uh, Valon says, I have a little trouble to set up Google Merchant. Oh, all of my health and beauty products are not approved due to misrepresentation. I Sucks. I believe I have set up all correctly as I have a second shop with no problems at all. They found some sexual interests, restricted adult content, etc. That will be on individual products, which is impossible to find in beauty products. Um, hmm, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Uh, do you have any idea why Google found those bugs? Um, only one thing I found is I don't have GTN numbers, GTIN numbers on all of my products. All right. So misrepresentation sucks. Um, you know, a lot of people will have heard about this. Some people get suspended, get their merchant center account suspended when they first um, get into the ad, trying to do the advertising with Google. It's quite frustrating. Um, but there's a couple of things to remember here. One, it's automated in the beginning. It's all driven by AI now, right? Um, and so often those things happen when there is not something wrong. So saying like I, I've got another site where everything's fine, I've done the same thing over here and I've got suspended. Yeah, that can happen. Even if you did exactly the same thing and one got approved and one didn't, that can happen. That can literally happen. It's super frustrating. It's annoying as hell, um, but uh, it happens. Um, so you may not have anything wrong. Certainly, um, you've got two issues there. The first is the misrepresentation thing. That's an account-wide issue. The second one where you're saying they're classifying your some products as, you know, being about sexual interests or restricted adult content, that will be something that you uh, appeal on a, they do get that wrong commonly, like for whatever reason. You know, one of your products might have skin color on the product right? And they assume that it's naked skin. Like, I mean, it just happens, right? And once again, it's AI driven. None of this stuff is a human being, at least in the beginning, sitting there going, looking at your side going, oh man, these guys, I don't know what your health and beauty products are. Lipstick is really a sex toy, right? Um, that's not what happens. It's just an, it's a bot crawls your site. And if it finds something, it thinks it should flag, it flags it and your account's automatically suspended. Um, and then you've got to work backwards from there to get people, um, you know, um, you know, uh, to get people to look at it and to help you out. Um, and look, it's annoying, but it is what it is. That's the scenario we have to deal with at the moment. Um, now, for the individual products, you can clear those up separately to your account-wide thing. So whenever you have products that get individual products that get suspended because they think the product itself violates a particular policy, there'll be a, a manual review for individual products. So in your merchant center account, you can go into the bit where it gives you the list of products. It'll show you which ones have issues. You click into those. There should be a button in there that allows you to manually review individual products. So you, sh you should do that because they've, they've likely got that wrong. And th those generally get cleared up pretty quick. Um, the misrepresentation thing is harder. Look, there's there's so many little things that can trigger that. Um, 
you know, it can be something as simple as just having a dead link on one of your product descriptions or on your site somewhere that goes to a 404 error page, just one out of, you know, you might have hundreds of products and one's got a dead link in it and you didn't know it was there. That can literally be it sometimes. It could be other things like they don't like the address you're using or, you know, or maybe there's nothing. The only thing I can really say um, is that these sort of suspensions, if you're proactive with getting them fixed, always get fixed. Nobody is suspended forever. It can fit. I understand some people out there probably listening to this going, yeah, well, I've been suspended for months. Yep. In some cases that happens too. Once again, it sucks. It will get fixed though. Um, I mean, I've been doing this, been working with people, interacting with these systems for eight years now, like directly. I've never seen anybody who has been suspended for their entire life. They get fixed. Um, lately, I can say that, you know, from our student group, um, who we obviously work a bit closer than compared to people who are not in our student group, um, I've seen people get their, have most success getting their suspensions overturned by using the chat support that Google has and just being continuing to engage with that until they get somebody at Google who will help them. Once again, at Google, there are different, different levels of employee um, and there are different people and some are more helpful than others. Some will be more proactive on your behalf than others and you just have to keep keep pushing it, like just keep getting in there and contact them in any way you can um, and you will at some point get somebody who will help you either by looking at it and saying, yes, this shouldn't be suspended because there's nothing actually wrong. We'll, we'll get it overturned or they'll actually tell you in, in a more specific sense what is actually wrong um, and, and they'll get that fixed. So look, I think, I think that's the, the most I can say. Um, uh, I hope you get it sorted at some point for sure. All right, next question is for from Ben. Hello, Ben. Um, ben says, my question is, what advice would you give to someone who is feeling overwhelmed at the market selection phase of the course? I've researched multiple markets and I'm finding that many seem rather saturated in the Aussie market, so Ben's Australian, with some well-established competition. It feels like an insurmountable boundary to compete and find success. How would you approach this from your experience? I'm committed to this business model, but finding it difficult getting past this stage. So what I would say, um, look, uh, I think, you know, obviously without seeing some of the examples of, of some of the things you've been looking at, and Ben, you're, you're a member of our course, so that there's ways that we can uh, discuss some of these things in more detail through our market, uh, our niche verification stuff, and, and you can certainly send some of your examples of the the markets that you've been looking into through there, and I can probably provide some more tailored advice to individual things that you're looking at. But, you know, I think certainly niche selection is a place where it's very easy to overthink a lot of things um, and to overanalyze a lot of things. And that can lead to you getting held up. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it so many times over the years. Uh, and once again, 
that's not a criticism. I, I completely get it, you know. I mean, making that decision, it feels like a very big decision in the beginning and it absolutely is an important decision. Um, but once again, I'll go back to what I said. The, the number of the number of comp, the amount of competition is more important than individual competitors, in my opinion, and literally um, with this business model, significant experience. Uh, I have seen people be successful so many times in niches that had existing high quality competition, you might say. Um, and, and and the reason is just that, like, once again, it's very easy to overestimate the impact that individual businesses are having in a particular niche or market. Um, you look at their website and you go, oh, my God, that's so amazing. And, oh, how will I ever compete with that? Um, and, and the reality is just that, no, like I say, no business gets all the sales, no one business, no two businesses, no three businesses. In many markets now, obviously, in a, in a country like Australia, where you do have that smaller population, the amount of competitors that a market can sustain is, of course, lower than a country like the U.S. or a country with a larger population. For sure, that's true. Um, but you also generally see that markets in Australia have a lower number of competitors anyway. Um, so I'm sure some of the ones you're looking at may 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 be too competitive. Um, that that does happen, um, but there there are plenty out there that aren't. Um, and I would just say, from a mindset perspective, don't focus on individual competitors. Um, it's not in the beginning. It's not really a helpful exercise because you don't you don't know anything about them. Like when, when you look at a website from the outside, like just trust me, you don't know anything about it. Um, and, and that's, you know, to go off on a tangent, that's why people who copy other people's websites never succeed um, because the success in a business is not what happens on the front end. It's really driven from behind the scenes. And all the things that you do to engage with your customers, to serve your customers, to build relationships with suppliers, um, you know, things like retargeting, email marketing, like all of the sort of more back-end stuff that you can't really see from the outside. There's so much stuff you can't see from the outside. In the example of the one, you know, you can't see somebody's sales. You can make assumptions though, oh, I'm, you know, I see them running all these ads and stuff. I mean, you don't even know that they're making any sales off those ads. Like, you can say, well, yeah, well, why would they be running them then? Yeah, maybe, but maybe they make a lot of sales in other mechanisms and they run the ads to, you know, grab a bit of market share and run them as loss leaders. Like there, there's all sorts of things going on. And so it's just not, there's so much that you can't know about competitors, individual competitors that there's no reason thinking about them that much. So, I mean... I look at my competition every so often and I like, you know, you compare pricing and stuff, but I don't spend significant amounts of time worrying about my competition. Like in any business I'm in, um, you know, whether it's e-commerce, whether it's what we do here at Dropship Breakthrough, I'll say when it comes to what we do at Dropship Breakthrough, I don't spare a single thought for my competition ever. I just don't care. Um, 
Uh, I just know I'm, I'm going to do the best thing I can do and it's going to be good. So I go do that. Um, so focus on the number. Like, I mean, once again, if you're in Australia and you're looking at a nation, you've got 20 direct competitors that you can identify. Well, it's going to be hard to push yourself above that pack. You're just going to get lost in it a little bit in the beginning. And it's going to means it's going to take longer. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It's never impossible. It's more a case of in the beginning, getting lost in a pack of competitors, it's difficult to push your head above that. It takes more time. And so if you're thinking about two niches and one is more competitive than the other, we'll go for the one, all other things being equal, go for the other one because you're just going to push above that quicker, right? But even in a more competitive niche, you can still get somewhere over time. Um, most people aren't patient enough to do that, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Like I say, Ben, you're in the course, so you you get to email me about this stuff. So um, maybe share some of your examples and I'll, I'll give you some... Um, more specific uh, advice on that. All right, back to my live um, live questions. Thank you for that. Um, all right, we're going down to, let's see, Eshawn, Eshawn, Eshawn. Hello, mate. Thanks for your question. Any advice for Bing ads for B? to be sites, I sell commercial restroom products. Cool. Uh, any advice for Bing ads for B2B sites? Well, not really. I mean, not, not outside of any of the usual pay-per-click advice I would give. I mean, business-to-business -business sales. Uh, th there are different ways of doing business-to-business -business sales to business B2C sales for sure. Um, but uh, pay-per-click ads still work, right? So think about, when you think about a business to business, you think of you're selling to businesses, you think of the business like this big company, which it is, but at the end of the day, there's still an individual within that company who is going to be looking for the products. Maybe it's a purchasing manager or a purchasing officer. And, and yeah, maybe they have to go and come up with a recommendation and, and put that to their board of directors or to their boss or to the owner of the company or something like that to get approval to buy products. But at the end of the day, it's still an individual who's sitting there going, ah, crap, I need to get some more toilets. Where am I going to get toilets from? Uh, and they're going to, you know, maybe they've got a list of suppliers. Uh, and like I say, there might be ways you can get yourself onto such lists. But a lot of those people are still going to go to a search engine and type in, <laughs> Where can I buy commercial toilets from? Um, commercial toilets for sale. And so whether it's Bing or Google, um, running the running the ad, the shopping ads there, is going to get you in front of some B2B um, people. You could probably, if you're only selling B2B products and you think there's some crossover in search terms with B2C products. So for example, you know, if you were, had toilets, and your toilets that you sell are pretty much more for the B2C side, like they're the sort of toilets you might put in a venue or something like that, and they're not the sort that somebody would put in their house, then you probably want to be fairly tight with your search terms and make sure, because there will be search terms that people search when they're looking for, um, you know, a, a more commercial-focused product, right? Like they might use the word commercial. Uh, and so... Yeah, you might have to run ads for a little bit to see some of those patterns. A bit of keyword research can probably help you there as well. Uh, identify what some of those things. And I'd be targeting those search terms. Um, 
Search text ads can often work well uh, for B2B products as well um, because once again, with a search text ad, you can you have full control over what appears in the ad, like the copy in the ad. And so you can make it very specific to B2B customers um, and, and really call them out, call out that ideal customer in your search text ad. And once again, with a bit of keyword research, you should be able to find some uh, particularly B2B focused search terms to target there. So, I mean, that's probably something I would experiment with if it were me. Um, and yeah, I think that's probably where I would start. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything, anything really other than that specifically that I would be doing for B2B for, um, uh, for, for Bing or Google for that matter either. You know, I mean, at some point you can, you know, if, if you get, once you get very familiar with your with your customer on the business to business side um, and you think, you know, you know a bit about how to serve them, what they're generally looking for and uh, you feel, you know, you want to go into a bit of a lead generation phase. I mean, you could go and run ads to like a, a lead capture page for people who are looking for a quote for commercial products rather than sending them to like product pages or something like that. Um, you know, you could go and say like have a page on your site that kind of outlines your trade program, which if you're selling B2B, you should have a trade program like volume-based pricing and all of that sort of stuff. Um, explains that a bit and just has like a form. And it's like, you know, if you want to uh, have a chat with one of our representatives about a, a quote or something like that, put your details in here. We'll call you back in the next blah, 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 blah whatever you want to say. Um, you can run ads to such a page and generate leads and then call those people. Um, for B2B, getting people on the phone uh, is going to, you know, uh, be really helpful for you. So you should be focused on ways that you can do that as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. That's the end of the Ask Me Anything. Once again, if you'd like to get into those sort of sessions and join them live and interact and be part of the whole thing, Find the link below this episode in the show notes to our Facebook group or head on to Facebook and search Dropship Breakthrough and you'll find it. Um, join. You'll get in. You can take part. You can have get all of this sort of fun. And, of course, if you're ready to start your high-ticket dropshipping journey, we've got two options for you. Uh, firstly, our launch program, which is a more recent program for us, it's taken directly from our full program, but it's a bit smaller and it's aimed to help you start from scratch with zero experience and get your site built, your business built and launched and making its first sales. So it comes at a significantly lower investment than our full program. You can get access to it at dropshipbreakthrough.com forward slash launch. You'll find the link to that in the show notes as well. Or if you're just ready to dive on into our full program, get the encyclopedia, the Britannica of high ticket dropshipping, go straight for our full program, Dropship Breakthrough. Just go to dropshipbreakthrough.com forward slash join. You get instant access. You can start building your business today, literally taking the first steps today with our support. See you there. Thanks for listening to the Dropship Podcast. You can find all the show notes for this episode at dropshippodcast.com. 
And if you're ready to take the next step in your dropshipping journey, we invite you to join us inside Dropship Breakthrough, where John and I will walk you through step-by-step in starting your own high-ticket dropshipping e-commerce business. But that's not all. Dropship Breakthrough will also teach you everything you'll need to know to grow your business and take it to the next level. So head over to dropshipbreakthrough.com and sign up for our free training that will help you take the first steps towards building and growing your own profitable high-ticket dropshipping business.